Good morning, Cornerstone. When I was growing up in Cleveland, Mississippi, anybody know where Cleveland, Mississippi is? Cleveland, Mississippi is about 60 miles north of Jackson, Mississippi, and I spent most of my summers down in Cleveland, Mississippi with my grandmother, aunts and uncles, and a whole lot of cousins. And I have very fond memories of my childhood growing up in Cleveland, Mississippi. I recall the smell of fresh rain, rain like I've never smelled before, the sound of the whippoorwill in the morning time. I recall the smell of jasmine on the way to my grandmother's house. I remember that so vividly, what that smell was like. But when I remember Cleveland, Mississippi, what I remember more than anything else is the demeanor and the disposition of the people, the sameness of the people in the South. No matter what house you visited in, in Cleveland, Mississippi, it was always the same. You were always greeted with a big smile. No matter what was going on in people's lives, you were always greeted with this big smile. You're always invited to the kitchen table to eat whatever was cooking on the stove, and there was always something cooking on the stove. Amazing, no matter where you went. Are you hungry? Did you get enough to eat? How are you sleeping? You want a cold drink? Every house you went to, it was the same. The same attitude, no matter where you went. Southern people, and maybe northern people as well, since I'm northern, maybe I don't notice it, but southern people tend to share a very similar attitude, a similar approach to life and to others. Having the same attitude is the first step toward unity. This is the hope that Paul expresses for the church in Philippi in verse 10, in verse 2, where he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Paul doesn't mean that we should all think exactly the same. That is not possible. And if we all think exactly the same on every subject, we may be more of a cult than a church. We don't all think exactly the same. We do not all hold to the same political philosophies. And if we do, we're probably in a cult and not a church. We differ in opinions. To be of the same mind does not mean to think exactly the same. In the text, the way the word is used here, it means to be of the same attitude, the same demeanor, the same disposition. That we will have the same disposition and posture toward one another and toward those who are outside of the faith. Be of the same attitude. In verse 1, Paul tells us what this Christian disposition, what this Christian attitude looks like. He shows us that the disposition of Christian unity is first of all encouraging. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, meaning that the follower of Jesus Christ always stands ready to come to the emotional aid of others, if there is any encouragement, 
This means that the posture of the believer is always to support one another and to spur one another on to good works, encouragement. Believers are natural or spiritual encouragers. That should be our common demeanor, our common disposition. Encouraging others to dream and to pursue their dreams. Encouraging one another to hope and to take God-honoring risks for Christ. Providing emotional support for those who choose to step out of the boat and into greater service to God. Encouraging others. To encourage others is to inspire others to believe that their God-honoring vision is in fact possible. The attitude of the church, Paul says, is to be an attitude of encouragement. He goes on to say that the attitude of the people of God is an attitude of comfort or consolation. If there is any consolation of love in Christ, this means that the follower of Jesus Christ always desired to calm the fears of those who are weak. Always willing and ready to alleviate the suffering of the hurting and to soothe the pain of the brokenhearted. The attitude of comfort. Then Paul says that the disposition of the believer is a disposition of contribution. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit in Christ, to fellowship, to fellowship is to contribute to someone else. And the first contribution is the contribution, Paul says here, the contribution of the Holy Spirit. Because God in his generosity has contributed to each of us the Holy Spirit. God has invested the Holy Spirit into each of our hearts. And if we've received this contribution of the Holy Spirit, Paul believes, we are required to continue to invest this spirit of comfort into the lives of others. We get a glimpse of what this reciprocal contribution looks like from Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It's a reciprocal comfort. God has invested in you and I. God has contributed to you and I, his Holy Spirit, and God expects us to make contributions into the lives of others, to deposit our lives, to deposit our energies, to deposit our efforts into the lives of others, a disposition of contribution. Not standing on the sideline, but getting involved and getting our hands dirty, giving of ourselves for the cause of Christ, giving of ourselves for the cause of humanity. Paul is saying that he is comforted because of the contribution of the Holy Spirit into his life so that he can make similar contributions into the lives of others. Disposition, the contribution. And finally, the disposition or attitude of the believer is an attitude of compassion. If there is any affection and compassion in Christ, these are the four defining qualities or characteristics of a unified group of believers. 
This disposition is the hallmark of every church of Jesus Christ. In any church where the majority of members do not share these four traits in common, you will not find a unified church. You will not find a church that is operating in the spirit of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that is the main difference between church as an organization, church as a club, church as a physical gathering, and the true church. We know that this morning there are literally thousands of groups of people all around the world who have gathered together physically to sing some songs, to teach some classes, to do some projects and so on and so on. But many of these are just physical gatherings of believers. Just because a group of people are physically gathered together doesn't mean that they are united. Can we agree with that? Just because a group of people are physically gathered together doesn't mean that we are united. You need to look no further than our own country to know that's true. We call ourselves the United States of America. We're really... Just together. We happen to be on the same space of the rock at the same time. But that doesn't mean we're united. We're even though we're physically together. The question could be asked, what causes a people who are not united to stay together? Why would a group of people come together Sunday after Sunday if they are not united? What causes that? Why don't they just separate? And the reasons are basically the same no matter whether we're looking at the country or a local church. Paul mentions three reasons why some believers might still be a part of the church even though they are not united with the church. And the first reason why a person might stay physically connected to a local assembly and not be united with that place is because of selfishness. In verse 3, Paul says, do nothing from selfishness. Selfish person is a person who lacks consideration for others. A selfish person is a person who only participates when their participation serves their own personal benefit. The selfish person is physically engaged in the church not to contribute but to benefit from the gathering. Selfish. Then Paul goes on to say, do nothing out of empty conceit. Conceited believers see a need in the church and instead of contributing to the good by helping out, they just sit back and judge. Empty conceit. Not willing to contribute, not willing to participate, not willing to engage on a spiritual level. They're just together. And as they stand back and judge what's going on in the church, they make themselves feel superior to others. They cause naive believers to think that they are more spiritual than they actually are. And they increase their influence at the expense of the group. Selfish, empty conceit. 
These types of believers will stay connected only as long as they are benefiting from the group dynamic, a dynamic in which they invest very little or nothing at all, empty conceit. The third reason why a believer might stay physically engaged with the congregation without being committed is because of their own personal interests, Paul says. Do nothing merely out of your own personal interests. Don't be a consumer Christian. There are some people who join a local assembly because of the number of CEOs they may come into contact with. They join a local assembly for networking purposes. Others may physically join an assembly because of the children's ministry or the Sunday school or the charismatic speaker. Some join church because of the proximity of the church to their homes, consumer Christians. People who connect to churches based primarily on these criteria commit to being physically connected with the ministry, but not necessarily united. And if a ministry comes along that offers something better, a better A or a better B or a better C, they will pack up and they will go to the next church. Personal interest keeps them together. To a large degree, these kinds of people are serving their own personal interests and not considering how their presence or their absence may affect those who have come to depend on them. They're only concerned about themselves. Selfishness, empty conceit, and personal interest are the three reasons people stay together even when they are not united. This applies not just to church, this applies to jobs. People stay at the same job even though they do not believe in the vision of the organization because it serves their personal interests. This applies to country or to states. This applies, applies to every organized collective of individuals. Most groups of people are together but they are not united. Togetherness is easy. Togetherness is simple. Togetherness is shallow. But unity is spiritual. And when I say this, I don't mean Christian unity only. Unity is spiritual no matter what the context is. Unity is spiritual whether it's secular or sacred. Unity is spiritual even in the animal kingdom. Someone said that even a group of ants that are unified can take down a lion. And that is true. If you get a group of ants together and they are unified and set on the same focus and the same goal, they can take down a lion. Where there is unity, the Bible says, there is strength. But it is a strength that is for good or for ill. When I say that, I think of Genesis chapter 11 where humanity had come together and unified themselves around a common goal. They wanted to build a tower for themselves. <laughs> and they came together around that goal, they encircled that goal, and they started building. And at first, I guess, God was kind of just sitting back watching the whole thing play out. But things started getting kind of serious. 
because the tower was getting taller and taller and taller. Wait a minute. The power of unity is something. The Bible says, the Lord came down to see this city and to see this tower that the men had been building. And listen to what he said. God said, behold, they are one people. They all have the same language. And this is what they have started to do. And now, nothing which they plan to do will be impossible. The power of you, even God saw it. You get a group of people together and get serious about the same thing, there is nothing impossible for people who are united. Nothing will be impossible. Nothing that they plan to do will be impossible. We know the rest of the story. God confused the languages and caused everybody to separate. And it's taken a couple thousand years, but man has finally learned how to circumvent that. And we created the internet. <laughs> so now I can talk to you no matter what language you speak. I can just interpret everything you just wrote and we can talk again. The world says that's progress. The world says that's good. But if you remember Genesis chapter 11, you know that's probably not a good thing. When we all start talking together and speaking and we become one, we tend to do some pretty damaging stuff. Social media is causing more chaos in the world than ever before. Riots and picketing and fights and wars, all because we all can speak together once again. We have circumvented God's idea to keep us safe. And now we're communicating all over the world to our own detriment. Such is the power of unity. Even ungodly unity is powerful. But how much more grand, how much more great must be the unity of Christ believers in his local church? How much greater must be our unity? How much more sublime is Christian unity? And the more fundamental question for us, what does Christian unity consist of? What is it? Paul answers that for us in verses two through four where he describes for us the five spiritual traits of Christian unity. For a church to be unified as one body, Paul says, the majority of members must maintain the same love. Maintain the same love. We know that love can be defined many different ways by different groups of people. What Paul is teaching us here is that if a group of people are going to be unified, we must have the same biblical understanding of what love is and how love is to be deployed. We don't need to make up our own definition. We don't need to go to the world to understand what love consists of. Because to the world, to, to love someone consists of giving them license to do whatever their heart desires. The way the world loves is to capitulate to sin and to immorality. We don't need the world's definition of love because I think they are sadly mistaken. We find our theology of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where love is de described as being patient and kind. 
not jealous and not boastful, not arrogant and does not act disgracefully. Love does not seek its own benefit. Love is not easily provoked. Love does not keep an account of wrong that is suffered. Christian love rejoices, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Christian love keeps every confidence. Christian love hopes all things, believes all things, and endures all things. That is our theology of love. Let us all be of the same love, Paul says. Love as defined by the word of God. We should share in common our definition of love and we should deploy our love based upon the text. To be kind and to be gentle, to not be easily provoked or angered. This is biblical love. When we all maintain this same standard for loving, when we all say and we all do and we all perceive one another and the world from a, through a lens of love, it contributes to our unity. Paul goes on to say, Philippians chapter two, verse two, that when a Christian, when to be Christian, to be unified as Christian means to be united in spirit. I like that. To be united in spirit. What he means here is to be, to be able to harmoniously work together. Unity of spirit, to cooperate together, to participate together, to be able to find compromise and agreement, to work harmoniously together. Now, when we begin to speak of, in terms of harmony and cooperation, the first thing we think of is working together. We have to learn how to work together as a group, like on a project or on a, a, a church initiative. But Paul is not talking about business here. Paul is not talking about learning how to work together. If we are going to truly understand the implications of this harmony that Paul is talking about, we must understand it in the context of day-to-day -day living because that's what Paul is talking about. To learn how to get along together in relationship, not just to learn how to work together, but to learn how to live together. That's what Paul is talking about. Later today, we're going to have our congregational meeting. We'll be discussing a number of different potential projects, things like that, organizational details. And obviously, we would like for this to be a harmonious gathering, right? We would like for this to be a harmonious business meeting. But the harmonious tenor of the gathering should be the result of our harmonious relationships, not just for the sake of keeping peace. True harmony is only possible when we love one another more than we love ideas or visions or projects or causes. I may not care particularly for some aspect of ministry, but I love and value the person who is doing the ministry. So I desire to enhance or to add to their vision rather than to tear it down. I seek to work in harmony with you because I desire to live in harmony with you. And no work that the church is doing will ever be more important than you.
However, to live in harmony doesn't mean to simply agree with others. To live in harmony doesn't mean that you should repress your opinions or your, or your perspective. That's not harmony. That is tyranny. That is repression. To live and to work in harmony is to be gentle enough with one another to be able to build consensus. This is harmony. To do this, this means that each one of us has to hold our own ideas and our own perspectives very loosely. Loosely enough to be modified or to be canceled all together, to hold our opinions loosely. To realize that we may not have all of the answers. The only way we can live harmoniously is if none of us has a need to be right or to have our own way. And if each of us is laser focused on maintaining and securing our relationships, we will live in harmony. That's Paul's descriptor for what it looks like to live in unity. Then Paul says that one of the hallmarks of living in unity together is to be intent on one purpose. I like that one. To be intent on one purpose. We learned early in catechism that the one purpose for which humankind has been made is to glorify God in all that we do and say and think. That is the purpose of humanity. That should be the intent of every email that I send, of every conversation that I have, of every project that I participate in, to bring glory to God. It's all for his glory. Hey, brother, look at there. Haven't seen you in a long time. It's all for his glory. And this subordinate posture, this is not easy to maintain. This posture of putting the purpose before my own personal interests is not an easy posture to maintain. We have to discipline ourselves in order to master this disposition. And when a people can focus their intent upon the same goal and aim of glorifying Jesus Christ, then God can do great things through them. When we share the same intention and the same purpose. Let me ask you the question. How often do you check up on your intentions? How often do you evaluate your intentions? Most of us probably don't do it often enough because it's easy to convince myself that whatever I am doing, whatever I have done was done with the right intentions. I tend to just trust myself a lot. Maybe you do too. And I assume that whatever I am doing, I am doing with the right motive and the right intention. But sometimes, brothers and sisters, we need to search our own hearts to find the source of our words and deeds. Sometimes we need to evaluate our true motives and intentions. When we all practice this, we begin to share the same intent more and more. And God is pleased with this level of unity singularly focused on bringing glory to the name of Jesus Christ. 
be intent on one purpose. Then this is the final characteristic. Paul says that Christian unity is defined by our humility. He says in verse 3, in humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. I didn't see anybody cringe in their seats when I said, I'm going to read it again then. Nobody cringed from that. In humility, consider one another as more important than yourself. I'll ask you this searching question. You can ponder on this one for the rest of the week. Who do you think is more important than you? Really, I'm not talking about a religious answer. Who do you recognize as being more important than you? Who do you think is more deserving than you? Who do you think is more worthy than you? Who do you believe deserves to be treated with more dignity than you? Those are some penetrating questions that should serve as a true challenge for most of us. Because we do not naturally or instinctively view others as more significant than ourselves. That is not natural. But that is what it means to be humble. To be humble doesn't mean that I think less of myself. To be humble means to think more, I think more of you than I do of myself. How many people live like that? How many people think honestly like that? I've been struggling with this all week, just reading it over and over again. He said it directly. Consider other people more important than you. Consider other people's desires more important than your desires. More important, not, not equal, but more important than yourself. That's just challenging, isn't it? Instructions like that serve for me anyway, serve for me as a challenge and a check. When I start feeling like I'm very spiritually mature and like I've arrived somewhere, I read a verse like that and realize I have a long way to go. It is not natural to think of other people as being more important than me. The ego wants to be most important of all. And most things that we do are geared toward our own benefit because we think that we are the most important person. That it, obviously, that's what the ego thinks. Paul is saying, no, you cannot have true unity. You cannot have true unity unless you see yourself as being the least of the entire congregation. Difficult, isn't it? What Savannah thinks is more important than what I think. What Alex is doing in ministry is more important than what I'm doing. Everyone in the church is more important than me. 
everyone in the church is more important than me. What happens when you get a group of people who all think that same thing? You get unity. Because no one needs to be important. Everyone is trying to, to, to serve the other. Everyone is serving the other. Everyone is serving the other. No one is important. It's a race to the bottom for all of us. <laughs> that is difficult to do. Without the aid of the Holy Spirit, that cannot be done. What's interesting, however, is that this is the way Jesus Christ lived his life. When you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus seemed like he considered everybody to be more important than him, the more important man to ever step on the face of the earth. And yet he acted like everybody, the sinner, the drunkard, the prostitute, everybody in his view was more important than himself. These four dispositions are what lead us to be united together. When we have the same attitude, the same love, when we are united together in spirit, when we have the same intentions and purposes, and when we live our lives in true humility. This is the unity that we need in the church, the local church, and in the church at large. I will end with this simple quote from J.K. Rowling, who says that we are only as strong as we are united. And we are only as weak as we are divided. Unity. Togetherness and unity. I believe that these days call for the church to become more unified than ever before. As I look at the news and see the things going on around the world, just like you, I can see that the world is in desperate need of revival. If the church of Jesus Christ is going to bring about that revival, we're going to have to do it as one body, as one person. The church needs unity. This church needs unity. Every church needs more unity. And as we practice these disciplines that Paul lays out for us in this text, we will come together in a way that causes the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to emanate from this place and bring freedom and healing and blessing to all of our communities as a people stands together in one spirit, one intention, same love, same attitude, same disposition. We were at a meeting a couple Saturdays ago and the speaker was talking about this certain church who has this specific vision model that they're working from, this specific mission that they're working from. And he says, when you go to the church, you can tell that these people are all cut from the same cloth because they're all focused on the same thing. Discipleship is their thing. And everybody in the church is laser focused on discipleship, 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 unity. Same intention, same purpose. Same disposition of enthusiasm and excitement about what God is doing. Sameness, oneness, unity. And Paul says when you conduct yourself like this, it will bring his heart much joy. 
not only will Paul be pleased, but God will be pleased when we learn how to live together as believers in unity and harmony. And by this, the world will know that God has sent us because we love one another. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, this is a tall order that you've given us today to live together in unity, not just to be physically together, but to share the same disposition, which is the disposition of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the same attitude as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To love one another and to serve one another with the same love, to share the same intention and the same purpose. The only way this is possible, Father God, is if we all live in and through the same spirit, the spirit of the living God. So we pray today that we won't leave this place and just begin to practice unity, but that you will fill each one of us with the Holy Spirit that we would all be immersed into your spirit, one spirit, the same spirit, so that we all might be conformed to the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the only way that we can be unified in the way that you have envisioned for us, and this is the way that we desire. Fill us with the spirit. Fill us with your love. Cause us to be unified together to do great things to the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not for our own benefit, but help us to live our lives pouring ourselves out for the benefit of others, just as Jesus did. It's in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat>